I want you to think in your mind, what is your favorite Christmas carol? Maybe as I ask that question, a few carols or a carol comes to mind. Perhaps you're like me, if I can be honest, I have begun to listen to Christmas music. It's not too early. Amen. There we go. You know, you have, I don't know if it's just because as we've started to have children or what, but, but I've, I've found that as I've gotten older, I've become more and more sentimental about Christmas. And so I find myself just sitting there listening to the music and my mind being filled with memories and expectations and excitement over the Christmas season to come. But all of sentimentality, all of the nostalgia cannot help me get over the hump of one particular Christmas song that I just don't understand. Now, this might be a song that came to your mind when I asked you the question originally. I'm going to take that risk. That song is Mary, Did You Know? Now, I like Mary, Did You Know? Whenever I find it comes on the radio, I'll find myself kind of humming along with the tune. But kind of the foundational question of the song, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would be this Messiah? The answer is a resounding yes. Yes, in fact, Mary did know. And we see how she knew in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38 today. But lest we be too difficult, or lest we, I, I throw us in there, maybe it's, maybe it's me, lest I be too difficult with a song like Mary, Did You Know? There is some good that we can take as we consider this question of Mary, Did You Know? And the good that we can take, the thing that we can learn, the thing that we must pull from it, is not to actually ask ourselves, did Mary know about this baby who would, she would have and what he would do? But do we know? And more precisely, do we understand all that Jesus has done and therefore what it means to follow Him, to obediently trust Him? The danger with a text like this is that it's so familiar to us that we can lose sight of the power and the importance of it. And yet we must see the example that Mary sets for us in following Jesus. And what I want to put before you, the big idea for our text today, is that we obediently trust God because of His grace to us in Jesus. Let me say this again. We obediently trust God because of His grace to us in Jesus. Let me read from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. I invite you to follow along as I read, and we'll dive into the text and get to work. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, where he, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? since I'm a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, 
Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Going to see two things in this passage. First, the message that calls us to obediently trust God. And then, secondly, the model of obediently trusting God. The message that calls us and the model of obediently trusting. Okay? First, in verses 26 to 33, the message that calls us to obediently trust God. If you remember last week's sermon, last week's sermon text, Luke 1, verse 5 to 25, if you're new with us or you're, you're, you're uh, uh, getting acclimated to how we worship today, we generally just go through books of the Bible, just passage by passage by passage. So we just started a series in the Gospel of Luke just two weeks ago. So you've joined us at a great time. And at, last week in verses 5 to 25, this same a- angel Gabriel appeared to an aging priest named Zechariah and told him that he and his wife, though they were advanced in age, they would have a son. And this son would serve as a prophet for the people of Israel, preparing them for the arrival of the Lord. And now we look in verse uh, 26, and it says, in the sixth month. So this is in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist who would come. And now, she, and now Gabriel is going to appear to Mary to proclaim yet another miraculous pregnancy. But this time not to a woman who is aging and, and past childbearing years, but this time to a teenage girl who is in a small town off the beaten path, this town Nazareth, which likely had between 400 and 500 people. In fact, Nazareth, this town that Mary lived in, was so small that throughout the whole course of the Old Testament, it is never even mentioned once. And Mary was betrothed to a man named Joseph, as we see in verse 27. But the greatest problem is not the small town Mary was from, not even her age, not even the fact that she was betrothed. And we'll get into what betrothed means in a moment. But the greatest problem is something that Luke makes sure we understand by repeatedly mentioning it. In verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man. In verse 34, Mary asked, how will this be since I am a virgin? The point of today's text is not to tell you where babies came from, but we all know that they don't come from virgins. This is the question that lies before Mary. And now we see that Mary, Gabriel tells Mary in verses 28 to 30, we see what he tells her. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, I'm going to pause here because there, as we talk about Mary, as we see Mary at the center of the story, we know that sometimes we don't quite know what to do with Mary. As Protestants, we know that the Catholic Church venerates Mary. The Catholic Church teaches that Mary was free from original sins and, or original sin and that she serves and she functions as an intercessor even between God and the church today. Respectfully, this is not what we see in Scripture. It's based on an overemphasis on the idea of favor that is found in verse 30 that was born of a, of a, of a poor translation of verse 30 hundreds and hundreds of years ago. 
The idea, as, as it was poorly translated, was this idea that Mary was a recipient of God's grace or favor and that she could give it out to others. Hence, requesting, praying, pleading for grace from Mary. But what the Scripture reveals to us is that actually Mary is a recipient of God's grace, just as He lavishes or pours His grace out upon other people as well. And so there's this overemphasis of favor and this belief that perhaps Mary can be uh, an intermediary between God and man. But this is what we see in Scripture. And this serves, just brief aside, as a good example of how we uh, uh, should think through and how we approach the concept of authority in the church. So our Catholic neighbors, they, 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 their authority in the church is, is, is the overall church and the tradition of the church and church leadership and the, and the structure there ultimately coming down from the Pope. But the Catholic church and the Protestant church, our, our, our authority is God's Word. We believe God's Word sets the course for us. And, and so authority and what, what the church sits under or, 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 or is shaped by is important in what a church believes. Now, if you are Catholic, I, I want to encourage you. Well, I want to, first of all, I want to welcome you and thank you for being with us today and, and tell you you are welcome to worship with us. But I want to encourage you to investigate what the Bible teaches and shows us about Mary. Today's sermon and the next couple of chapters of the Gospel of Luke over the next couple of weeks will do a wonderful job in showing us what it means to understand and believe, what, what to understand and believe about Mary and more particularly about the son that she bore. Jesus himself. And now for us who are non-Catholics, we face a danger with a text like this as well. We face a danger where, where we can kind of have our, our spidey senses up to a level where, where we, we know that uh, uh, the Catholic Church makes so much about Mary that we just kind of turn our face away and we just kind of want to ignore Mary. But that's not what we see here well either. We see Mary plays a central role not only in the story of the birth of Jesus, obviously, but in what Luke is showing to us in his gospel. In fact, here's what I think Mary, or what Luke wants us to see in Mary. So remember, uh, Luke is a skilled writer who's done all this careful research and investigation into this Jesus who has come and called all men to, and all women to follow after him. And so what Luke is showing us, if you rewind to last week, the angel Gabriel appears to this aging priest Zechariah, kind of this pillar of the community, this pillar of, of the people of God. And he tells them, your wife in her advanced age is she's going to have a baby. And what do we see? Zechariah does not believe him. Now, Gabriel appears to Mary and pronounces another miraculous birth. And we find that Mary does believe Gabriel. And so what I think Luke is holding up for us to see is not Mary a special uh, uh, a giver of God's grace to us, or an intercessor between us and God. No, that's not what it is. But what Luke is holding up for us is Mary is a model of obedient trust in the Lord. In fact, she's the first one that we see in the Gospel of Luke. So like other figures that we see throughout the Bible whom God uses and works in their life, their lives and, and, and pours out His grace upon, and they serve as models or examples to us, Mary falls in that line for us. So, dear church, we cannot turn our face away, but we must see Mary, this young teenage girl, betrothed to Joseph. Now, betrothed, what does that mean? We read it, verse 27, that Mary was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. 
To be betrothed, you could think of it as if being engaged, not yet married, but legally joined together like a couple that is married. So Mary and Joseph had not formally said their vows. They had not consummated their marriage. They were not living under the same roof yet, but legally they had committed themselves to one another. So in one sense, it's like engagement today, but in another sense, it's like marriage today with legal commitments and uh, a, a covenant made with one another. So it's more high stakes than how we understand engagement in our day. So Mary, a virgin, betrothed to Joseph, she serves as an example, trusting or having faith in God. But when we speak of faith, sometimes we speak or we talk of faith itself as the end or the focus of our conversation. She's a woman of faith. He's a man of great faith, of deep faith. And sometimes I think we understand what we're talking about, but if we're not careful, the faith that we speak of can actually become the ultimate thing as opposed to the object of that faith. So we have to be careful in thinking through what it is our faith rests in. I remember not long after 9-11, there was a big healing service or community event that was held at Yankee Stadium. And representatives from many major religions were there, and they were all offering prayers and or words of comfort after that horrific event, trying to bring comfort and trying to bring peace to a city that was in, 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 in disarray, a city that had been ripped apart, that was grieving the unexpected losses of thousands and thousands of its own people. But something struck me as I watched that service. All these different representatives from various different faiths, all, all, all trying to serve and minister uh, uh, in a manner of uplifting and building up the community, I felt that in so many ways what they were offering was, was lacking. Now hear me on this. It seemed as if they were, they were just throwing darts out into the universe, almost hoping something stuck. But... What Gabriel tells Mary about the baby that she would have informs her understanding and gives bedrock foundation to the faith and the hope that she, that, that, she, that she would model for us. That faith is not cast into the sky or the universe just to orbit around and to, to live by, 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 by feel-good thoughts or by wishful thinking. No, faith or trust in God is anchored in the bedrock truth of Jesus who has come and who is building His kingdom of which there will be no end. In fact, look at what Gabriel tells Mary about the baby that she would have in verse 31 to 33. He says, You'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Do you see the divinity of the promised son here? And how he's promised to fulfill what the Old Testament has been anticipating about the Messiah. In 2 Samuel 7, as Natalie read just a few moments ago, God told David, your throne shall be established forever. Now, unless David is going to live forever, then something has to be happening here that requires our understanding. See, as we know, God rescued, set apart a people, people of Israel. He began to build a kingdom. 
And this is echoed in Psalm 89 and Micah 4, Daniel 7. And this kingdom would need to be represented by a king who could rule over the people in justice, in righteousness, in truth, working to serve for their protection, for their security, for their prosperity, for their joy, for their gladness, for their well-being. And this is, David was set apart for this task. So the people of Israel had King David, who they revered and who they held in high esteem. But the problem is, King David was only a man, and one day he was going to die. Even greater problem, even as a man, he was a man who, though he did great things, was sinful. And could not be the anchor, the rock, the source of the ultimate hope of his people. But what God is holding out here in verses 31 to 33 is that Jesus is the one who would come after his father David. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And now here's where this foundational hope in Jesus and the kingdom that he is building is absolutely awe-inspiring for us today. As I mentioned a few moments ago, you think about the places, the ways in which a good and just king rules over his people. They live in the joy of being perfectly secure within his grasp. They live in the peace of knowing that no matter what life may throw at them, nothing can rip them away from him. They live in the provision knowing that He watches over and knows every need that they have. They live in the promise of being able to flourish as His people, knowing that He is working all things together for their ultimate and great good. Are you downtrodden over the future of this country? Are you filled with fear? over what a possible Democratic or Republican, Republican-led government would ever look like. I want to hold out to you the hope of another kingdom, the offer of citizenship in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The church itself is an outpost or an embassy of the kingdom of God. and We who are Christians, we are citizens of that kingdom. Entrance into the kingdom is found through forsaking one's allegiances to, 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 to the kings or the gods of this world. Repenting of those and placing one's trust in King Jesus. And coming to Him for the joy and the peace that is unshakable and that is found in Him. I listened to a podcast interview this week with a couple of Afghan pastors. This interview was about all that they and fellow Christians in Afghanistan have endured since the Taliban retook control of the country a little over a year ago. They spoke with great heartache over what has come to their homeland, over the dangers and the snares that the church in Afghanistan faces. But they also spoke over how time and time and time again, even in the face of threats of death, even in the face of knowing other Christians who have likely, they haven't gotten word from them, but have likely had to give their lives as followers of Christ, even in the face of this, they speak of the sureness of Jesus Christ as their rock, their refuge, their very present help in time of need. Yes, their King who promises to be with them. And this is the offer that is available for you and for all who would look to Jesus. Citizenship in His kingdom. Warmth inside from the cold, harsh realities of this anxiety-riddled life. It is available And it's available through the baby that Mary bore.
just a side note. I don't have time to go too far on it, but it must be noted that this Jesus, He's the one that ties, that connects, that holds our Bibles together. This reference to Jesus, uh, uh, to David, to uh, He will reign over the house of Jacob, echoing back to the Old Testament. Of His kingdom there will be no end. He is the one who connects the dots of our Bibles, gives life to it, that his, that, and that He through His Word gives life to our souls. And all of this is set before us that we might hear this message of this coming King. We might have bedrock hope in Him. And like Mary, we might know who this one who would be, who this one who would come would be, and we might see her example in obediently trusting God. Okay? So the message here is a King is coming. And He calls you to come to Him and live. And the model, the example for us The first disciple that Luke holds up for us in his gospel is none other than the mother of this king. Teenage, betrothed, virgin Mary. Verses 34 to 38, we see the model of obediently trusting God. So remember, Luke carefully retraced Jesus' steps. He interviews eyewitnesses. He scours the reports and the accounts of Jesus' life and of those around him. So as he gets to the heart of presenting these two birth prophecies, John and Jesus, he starts to develop this picture of how one enters the kingdom, of how the kingdom is proclaimed by John, a message of all who would come to come to God, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. But then what he shows is he says that this repentance is called that is placed on all who would come to the kingdom. But the message of salvation is found not in, uh, uh, not in what we can do to atone for our sins, but in what actually the King who comes and the wonder of the Gospel, the wonder of Christianity, is that this King doesn't say, here, come, crawl, crawl your way to me. No, He has come to us. And He has atoned for our sins in His cross. So in verse 34, Mary asked the angel Gabriel an understandable question. How will this be since I am a virgin? This response is not born of unbelief as Zechariah's was. It was born of a question of it for explanation. And the angel answers her in verses 35. In verse 35. A good friend of mine describes how things that the Bible teaches are sometimes easily navigable. Like walking around in the shallow end of a swimming pool. But then there are some things that the Bible teaches that are no longer in the shallow end of the pool. As opposed to walking and bobbing around in little four foot high water where your head's easily above water and you can hold your own. Sometimes there are doctrines or things that we see in Scripture that seem as if we've been dropped out in the middle of the ocean. Bobbing around as five, six, seven foot swells bounce us up and down, trying to keep our head above water. Well, the incarnation of Jesus takes us to the deep end of the pool. The angel says to her, look at, read verse 30, follow along as I read verse 35. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, we have to understand a few things here. Being overshadowed with the presence of God means that God created in Mary a baby. God did not have sex with Mary. 
she was a virgin, but by the power of the Holy Spirit of God that worked miraculously in her, the Son of God was united with the human nature in Mary's womb. Now we must be clear that the Holy Spirit did not create Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is eternal as the second person of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet what we see here is that the the, the Son of God was created in human form in the womb of Mary. Even though He had eternally existed in perfect fellowship with God the Father and God the Spirit. This baby Jesus was a real person, but He was born with a different nature than ours. He was not born with a sinful nature as we are as humans. He was born with a sinless nature. He was born the Son of God, not the Son of Adam, as the rest of us are. Now, what does it mean to be born with a sinful nature? It means to be born in a nature where one disobeys or acts in rebellion against the Creator. Let me illustrate this in a key way to present an honest assessment of who we are as human beings. When I was a child, and you too, I'm going to assume every single one of us in this room have a sinful nature. Easiest assumption I will make all day, all week, all year, okay? Bear with me. But when I was a child, and probably you too, I had to be taught how to say please. I had to be taught how to say thank you. I had to be taught how to hold silverware at the dinner table. I had to be taught and told, yes, you can hold the silverware, but that does not mean you pick your vegetables at your brother or sister at the table. These are things that did not come that I did not have the ability to do as I came out of the womb. Safe to say? Everybody agree with me on that? Good. But you know what no one had to teach me as a little child? No one had to teach me how to steal a cookie out of the cookie jar when my mom had told me no more cookies. No one had to teach me uh, how to selfishly want a toy for myself and to not share or to go steal that toy from a sibling or a friend. No one had to teach me how to do that. I had to be taught manners, not, not little vestiges of sinfulness that would manifest itself. We are all born sinners of the line of Adam through which sin entered the world. But Jesus is the second Adam. He is one who did not have a sin nature. Mary never had to chastise Jesus for punching his brother. Mary never had to chastise Jesus for lying about where he got a cookie. Now, Jesus, I do think as part of his human nature, I do think Jesus did not come out just knowing everything. I think he had to learn, probably, maybe, math. I think he probably had to, I I think there were times where perhaps Jesus uh, was told something and maybe he forgot it. I don't know that definitively, that can be up for debate. But what we do know is that Jesus never had to learn not to sin. He never had to be corrected in that. So he is entirely 100% human with us in the human experience, yet properly detached from us in the sinfulness of the human experience. And so we give funny jokes or anecdotes about stealing cookies or flicking vegetables at the dinner table, but what we see is that our sinfulness manifests itself into a cancer that rots away the soul as it gives way to ultimately distrust, disbelief, and even rebellion against God. 
And that rebellion can be manifested in anger, like a small child ripping a toy away from somebody he or she doesn't want to share with. Or it can be manifested in simple unbelief in God. Distrust in His promises. Refusal to humble oneself under His authority. And so the Lord has revealed this second Adam, this Son of God who would be born to Mary. And now I want you to see what God shows and tells Mary in verse 36 and following. And behold, the angel Gabriel tells her in verse 36, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Verse 37, he references or paraphrases Genesis chapter 18, verse 14, where he says, for nothing will be impossible with God. This reference pulls the virgin teenager girl's, teenage girl's mind back to the story of Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who conceived Isaac in her old age, reminding her, Mary, and us that God is in the business of working the impossible. It is as if God is concerned with making sure his servants know that he is able to do the miraculous. Old Testament commentator Dale Ralph Davis says that God has a, quote, holy anxiety to sustain the faith of his servants. He wants to give us truths to hang on to. He doesn't just drop us in the middle of the ocean and say, good luck. Gabriel drops this bomb on Mary and then says, hey, Elizabeth, go talk to her. Remember Sarah from the Old Testament? She had a miraculous pregnancy. And maybe you find yourself today reading, hearing this, and you say, God, I could use reminders that you are in the business holding your children's faith and keeping it from floundering in unbelief or despair. Or perhaps you say, I I, I would like to have faith. I would like to grow in my faith. Mary sets a good example for you. To grow in the faith, the Christian faith, is to obediently trust the Lord. It's an obedient trust that is grounded in the truth about Jesus that we follow. It's an obedient trust that is not just a tip in the cap in Jesus' direction, but a life change, a turn from a previous direction of life towards a life that has walked in obedience to Him. And so we see if we were to conclude, verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. But we must remember back to verse 27. She was a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. See, we must remember this as we understand what the obedient trust that we see in verse 38 means for the virgin Mary. This did not come with no cost. She was betrothed to Joseph. Remember, a violation of this legal commitment would have been considered adultery. And teenage Mary would face the risk of understanding that faithfully embracing God's will for her life could mean her fiancé ending it with her, believing she's unfaithful, and her becoming a social outcast, a single mother trying to raise a child. Though she does not serve as an object of our veneration, she serves as an example to be imitated in obedient trust. So I want you to consider two things, two parts of application as we conclude for us to consider what it means to obediently trust the Lord. First, Mary obediently trusted the Lord in spite of great future risk. 
There's no need to state what an unintended, what an unexpected pregnancy would mean for teenage Mary. The hushed or not so hushed gossip of the small town, Nazareth, and as explanation for her pregnancy spread or, or her word about it, perhaps there would have been those who believed her, but there certainly would have been those who said, nope, I know how babies are made and that's not it. You might not be asked today. In fact, another thing I'm very 100% certain about for all of us in this room, none of us will be asked today or in our life to carry in our womb the child of God. But you are asked, and I am asked, we are asked to understand that obedience to Jesus demands surrender of our future and even understand social costs that will come through our lives submitted to Him. Mary, understanding the king that she would bear, knew in her heart that as she trusted him, she could know that she would be secure in his kingdom. So Mary obediently trusted the Lord when it came to her great future risk. Will you surrender your future to him? Will you surrender your plans for your future and say, Lord Jesus, you, you, you can have it, control it? Or will you surrender your fears for the future? And allow and, and, and submit yourself under His authority and His reign and enter into His kingdom where He takes those fears and He doesn't just totally wipe them out, but He promises that He is with you and that He gives you life everlasting that those fears cannot triumph over. So, will you trust Him with your, fe- with your fears and with your future? And Mary obediently trusted the Lord in spite of great risk to her family. Imagine the conversation that Mary and Joseph had after this. There had to be questions on Joseph's part. This woman that I love, has she been unfaithful? What does this mean for me raising a child that is not mine? Not only a child that is not mine, but a child that supposedly belongs to God? Talk about a little pressure on a guy. Mary may have had an idea of how her, husband, how her fiancé would respond, but she stepped out in the unknown in her obedience. And she sets an example for us in doing so. Obedient trust in the Lord means trusting Him not only with our future, but with our families. Knowing that we have unchristian family members who will not understand the faith that we hold dear. Knowing that we will have demands upon our time and upon our priorities from outside that will be difficult to navigate if you're the only Christian in your home. Or if you're trying to raise your children who are not yet Christians and you have to make decisions regarding them and activities and and schedule and priorities that might be difficult in the eyes of the demands of the world. And yet what we find here Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let, me, let it be to me according to your word. Will we obediently trust the Lord, our King, who has been born of Mary? Will we thank God for and take her example, her model before us? And we don't have to ask ourselves, we don't have to sing or wonder Mary, did you know? But perhaps when we hear that song, and you will will hear it, 
You know, now that I've mentioned it, you're going to hear it all Christmas long. That's how it works. But perhaps the better way to turn it around when you hear it will be to say, ask yourself, do I know? Am I obediently trusting? And where it hurts to trust and to follow my Lord. Am I looking upon him upon whom his kingdom, the sun, the sun will never set on the kingdom of Christ? And is that sustaining me to obediently trust God because of his grace in Christ to us? Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to obediently trust you. We pray that you would help us to take the example of Mary. We thank you for Mary, this one who bore and gave birth to our Lord. And we thank you for the example that she sets for us. And we pray that you would help us to trust you. You equip us with the same power to work the impossible in us. As you worked the belief in her heart. Help us to believe in obedience to you that nothing is impossible with you. Perhaps that thing that is most impossible in our minds is our hearts that are slow to trust you. Give us the grace to trust you. And to walk in obedient devotion to you. We pray that you would do this by your power. We pray this through the name of Christ our King. Amen.